Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey there folks, Oliver here. This week we have a great discussion with Horace and I on the philosophical underpinnings of pricing, going back to Hayek, uh, and how road space allocation is currently misaligned to how it's valued as real estate. It is Horace at his best uh, philosophical pairing theory to reality and giving us all new frameworks to think about how the world works and how it will change. It's also got a discussion about communism and his early life, uh, which is fascinating if you're a Horace fan. Uh, Before I do dig in, I want to thank our sponsor for the episode. One of the things that we talk about here a lot on this podcast is the intersection between shared services and the governments that they need to work with. With COVID bringing cities around the world to a standstill, we are seeing many of them move forward with key infrastructure changes that prioritize pedestrians, cyclists, and small electric vehicles. We are bullish on the operators that will emerge on the other side of this, better at ops and more integrate with the cities as essential services. And that's where populace is important. They are building the digital tools that assist government agencies to manage their curbs, streets, and sidewalks with access to intelligent data and analytics tools. Last week, they announced their Open Streets initiative to provide cities with digital solutions to identify and communicate slow and safe street policies. Oakland, California recently announced that 74 miles of streets would be closed to through vehicle traffic in order to make it safer for pedestrians and small sustainable modes to travel for central trips and to create more room for social distancing. Populous works with cities around the world from Buenos Aires to Baltimore to help build trust between operators and regulators to see shared mobility become a big success that we think it can be. They run webinars and produce some of the best editorial content about the impact of micromobility on cities in the US that I've seen. If you're looking to educate yourself better on the space or are looking for tools to help build trust with your local government to take shared micromobility to the next level, check them out at populous.ai. I'm stoked that they're sponsoring the episode and supporting the work that we do in this space. And now, here's Horace. And welcome back to Micromobility. Uh, Horace, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm pretty good, pretty good, considering, yeah, nice. uh, yeah, yeah, well, crazy times we live in, but, uh, anyway, uh, uh we, yeah, yes, but, we have, we have something burning on our, on our, on our, we on do, our and we here. do, and I want to give the kind of, the slightly bit of a context, which is that, um, you know, I, I think, you know, during this COVID period and the current kind of economic collapse, I've been reading a lot of economics, um, trying to make sense of everything and, and, and you know it's, it's it's always a little bit dangerous when you go off and read a little bit I think um, uh, to to come back and sort of say oh no I think I've kind of worked some of this stuff out but there was there was a really interesting concept that I came across, across as I was going back and reading Hayek and uh, it, it came from the, the, the kind of seminal paper The Use of Knowledge in Society written in 1945 and it was around how information was distributed across society and how prices signal to a whole group about how to organize and allocate resources and i liked Mm -hmm. that as a framing for thinking about things like road space allocation um but as we were prepping to talk about this you got you you obviously have a bunch of caveats about uh walking into a political discussion around hayek so maybe we should start there so here's my overall thinking about uh, whenever you have whenever you have two sides to an argument you can almost bet with certainty that both are wrong. This is the fundamental thesis I have about politics, which I don't want to drag this discussion to politics, but generally, generally, uh, reality is a lot more complicated. And this is provable in a sense, because uh, society uh, cannot exist either in one pole or another, because it's going to get pulled by the other side at some point towards the middle. And so the, the, the generally society lives in a balance between these two uh, extremes. And whenever a society tends to wander into one extreme or another, whether left or right, you end up with a, with, with a, a dystopia and you end up with a, uh, a totalitarian situation 
because the society wants to pull towards the middle. That pull is resisted, and you can only resist it through force. And that's what gets us to the great tragedies of misgovernment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, or and communism so the, and fascism. Uh, right, the, well, the, the 20th century, polls. at least, yeah. that, the, that's the lens we have of the 20th century, but there were, there were polarizations prior and there were, there were tyrannies before that. And it's probable that, that, again, you know, I'm sure the ancient Greeks also felt the same tension, you know, uh, how can we achieve balance since, you know, some of us are sentimentalists, some of us are cynics, some of us are extroverts and some of us are introverts, some of us are, are you, you know, uh, uh, sociable and antisocial and so on and so on. And so the problem is that we have yin and yang all over the place. And the, 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 the fabric of society is one of typically of balancing what essentially are personalities and, and, and preconceptions that are, that are often uh, very diverse, even within a certain, even a single family may have multiple points of view. So it, it, we know how to get along with each other because we say, okay, let's, let's not get overly, you know, uh, uh, combative about things. So, so anyway, this is just a little bit of political That's the wider right context there. of what we're about to this discuss. Is why, why yeah, yeah. This, uh, I'm having to disclaim and, and, and kind of, Make sure that people don't get overly excited. I I, I tend to be uh, uh, wanting to sort of be the 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 middle ground here in general, right? So anyway, having said that, the 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 point about economics, the point about what Hayek is saying and price in particular is very important because what it does um, is it says you know there are other forces in the world uh, which govern behavior because uh, humans are. Uh, although impulsive, although prejudiced, although uh, probably misinformed, uh, they are probably also responsive to economic stimuli. Not all, and not everyone, and maybe, t- maybe many times there, there, uh, there are many things which go into a decision that, that we think of as a purchase decision, but it's a decision, an economic decision. There are many other factors besides price. But price is actually a remarkably effect- effective mechanism, as you said, to identify where resources should be allocated. And if you don't have price, if you somehow choose to ignore price, if you choose to eliminate price, um, things get really weird. Mm. And, and you, you can't imagine it probably. No one within the sound of our voices can imagine a world without pricing. But it actually did exist, has, has in my own life existed mm-hmm. uh, in, 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 a, in, a, in a communist society. And you can go to get today to North Korea and you'll see a world without prices uh, in the sense of, you know, price set by demand and supply. Price set, you could, someone could declare a price and make it top down, make it, you know, by diktat. Uh, and sometimes you get into situations where prices are determined not through economic factors, but through some arbitrary means. And that, that's what actually a lot of regulations are about, you know, whether you have a monopoly, because a monopoly tends to be able to set price without consideration for, for, for what the demand is. Um, and, 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 you know, OPEC and oil prices, there you go. The price for oil, although it tends to float somewhat, it can be controlled and manipulated by the producers. And that's why it's the oil producing uh, cartel, which well, is that what one partic- stands for. Oil in particular is fascinating. And, and, and half of this kind of motivation of wanting to go back and read Hayek and understand price signaling and, and why it's important around it, how we organize ourselves in society was, was on the back of having watched the price of oil go down to negative $40 in uh, the in the futures contracts which happened uh, in the, less than a month ago um, and and it was just this crazy like well how would the I think that was how this whole conversation started because I had said I was looking at this and trying to understand how how that would have worked in a centrally planned economy if all of a sudden you'd had a dry and drop off of demand on one side how would that have cascaded back down the supply chain and what would what would have happened in a, in a centrally planned economy um, to be able to communicate that back and I that's where I'm curious if you know of any examples of where that had happened well first of all let me just say that that even in the what you consider as a free market uh, or as, as 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 sometimes referred to a capitalist which I dis, I, I really dislike that term uh, I like all I dislike all these isms 
uh, I think generally uh, a, a better descriptor would be one where you know markets determine things, which is that's what's called a free market account economy. And and in the free market economy, uh, you you still have. Uh, uh, you you still have the absence of pricing on certain things, so you don't have pricing. And we you know, particularly us, uh, we here in my, micromobility uh, uh, point out the fact that uh, there are externalities in automotive, uh, in the automotive infrastructure we use, which means that there isn't a price for the impact for the of the car. Certainly, externalities in terms of pollution and other factors of quality of life, which the car impedes, and that's not priced in. Uh, or the big one that I always turn to is is parking, parking mm. through through regulation. In the United States, parking minimums uh, effectively subsidize parking. And as, as a result, there's in this invisible hand, not of the market, but of, of, of regulation, and uh, really bad thinking that uh, that uh, actually excludes uh, a better alternative, and 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 so it's not a level playing field. It's not an open market. It's not an open economy, which says all innovations are meritocracy or whatever. All innovations are 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 welcome and are priced according to the value they bring. No, that is certainly not the case. And we, we're seeing also with airlines right now, we're seeing with the response to COVID in terms of who gets a handout, who doesn't. Uh, the fact that it's unfair for the little guy and it's fair or more than fair for the big guy. Uh, and uh, all of these things are imperfections in the system. And so even the great free market economy, as we think we may have, has a lot of, uh, a lot of mispricing. And 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 so we we are sometimes blind to the fact that it actually we are being uh, uh, we are being victimized by by a, a poor allocation due to poor pricing and uh, and so and so that is one of the things that although you can you can suggest that a command economy which is the opposite of a free market economy a command economy is much more arbitrary much more. Uh, 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 suffocating in terms of the way pricings are, pricing is set. Yet, having lived there, having lived in those economies, there are still huge amounts of free markets uh, operating within that economy. So these are often what we think of as gray markets. We think of as black markets. We think of as the farmer's market. And we think of, uh, you know, the, the you know, something like 30, 40% of, of all the food that was produced in the Soviet systems was made was was a free market uh, agriculture because farmers were given a certain allocation of land to to do as they wished and most of them were made were more productive with a small plot of land than the state owned farms uh, altogether and so so the little the little farmer would actually create uh, and sustain a lot of the the uh, the food production similarly because you had in those mark in those highly oppressed regimes you actually had uh the the what effectively amounts is organized crime as really the 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 distribution game the distribution of goods uh because you didn't uh, you didn't properly think through when you were in a command economy you don't think through distribution you 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 think through production and you just think through consumption and you say okay we're going to balance these things out but you don't think about distribution. How do you get stuff to people? And so that vacuum was filled by effectively uh, the mafia-type organizations, which flourished also after the collapse because they were the only ones who could actually get things done. Mm, uh, and mm. so a vast amount of the, the, the economies of command economies are actually underground. Even today in North Korea, if you read the, a little bit beyond the, the first glance, you realize that the only reason it doesn't collapse is because it's actually sustained by, by a black market. And, and so you, you, you have effectively everybody and uh, being an entrepreneur, even though it's illegal to be so. So everyone's breaking the law because you need to break the law in order to survive. And, and I'm sure if you dig into Venezuela and you see other places, so it's, it either gets filled in with criminal activity or organized criminal activity, or it gets filled in by, by uh, individuals uh, figuring things out, how to do things under the table. Same thing in Cuba, etc., etc. So it, the, 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 the funny thing is that, you know, the contrast here is that you have a 
command economy, which is actually sustained by by uh, free enterprise, and you have uh, you, you have uh, free market economies, which are actually in many ways you know deadened deadened by uh, you know having having uh, 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 command and controls, which which are 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 put in place through through you know acts of man, if you will. Mm. Um, so, so you know, we we don't have in, in any case, you know, like I said, when you even look at a polarization, you say, oh, it's all black and white. No, no, no. There's gray everywhere. There's only gray. Um, but uh, but you know, life goes on. So you 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 try to figure it out, and and that's kind of the the world we live in. And this is why I'm I'm very careful. You should know the theory. You should understand how politics works. You should understand how s- social systems work and you read all all you can. But then you look at the world around you and you realize actually its implementations of theories are completely different. And uh, the the uh, you need to be a pragmatist to navigate through all of that not to be so dogmatic anyway that's, right well that's... i mean i i think i i kind of go back to the the um you know what what happened during the 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 1970s and 1980s and really if you're going to go to the, the reading a lot about hayek and his views around okay we should be trying to extend pricing out into like far far more areas of the economy and what ended up being pick, picked up by friedman and the others at the university of chicago and the, the development of the neoliberal framework and then how that was interpreted by thatcher and reagan and the impact that that had and 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 yet the part that i get out of all of that is that anytime you're kind of going from something that was slightly more controlled to a slightly more free market system or the other way around that it can be quite painful and the reason that i bring all this up and again i want to go back to that framing of as we think about how roading systems especially in our transport systems in the automobile um have largely been in some ways quite centrally planned systems right a road spaces is provided it goes through, uh, you know, a, a land area, and then it's largely not priced. It becomes a free good, mm-hmm. and 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 so all of this area gets reallocated. And so the response has been largely like, we'll just continue to expand and expand, but we have no pricing mechanism to help be able to allocate road space as it is used. Even though there might be far more productive uses, for example, on that road space. For example, having a bike lane, which actually f- facilitates far more flow of people on a, from a, on a movement basis um, for trips done, for example. It's um, funny in some ways how we end up with 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 the construct of the city and the way it decides to allocate its very precious res- resource, which is land, its most yes. precious resource. Yes, that process of allocation is the, the least efficient I've ever seen. It is it is fundamentally open to corruption. In many ways, you cannot think of another way of doing it. In a sense, because you can't really do it through. Um, it, it's kind of it's done by the tyranny of your neighbors. You know, there's no greater tyranny on 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 the planet than than that of your neighbors. In a sense, right? We see this embodied in phrases like "you can't fight city hall," and city hall is your neighbors. You know, it's 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 even the smallest town. You know, the the the, the individual feels oppressed. And they're oppressed by whom? By their neighbor, of course. If you ever saw that famous film, Chinatown, about the 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 water or uh, the wars that that Los Angeles fought, literal wars. I mean, although they were more like you know uh, gangland wars, but it was a war about uh, how to allocate water rights and and whether the city gets the rights or the farmers get the rights. To, to to water that was in the uh, coming from the mountains and and uh, and it, it was a bloody system that was very unfair and at the end it, it 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 actually victimized many people and there's a whole film again check it out mm. uh, uh, I'll link to it in the show notes yeah yeah it's 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 uh, it it was a 70s classic film called Chinatown so the the point that I'm making is that is that if if you step back and you think okay w- is there political science involved in micromobility? Is there political science involved in mobility policy? Absolutely. In fact, if you read about the the way those who are advocates for certain improvements in cities, especially nowadays with the COVID and related to, can we get more bike lanes, please? Can we get more space reallocated? Uh, the, the COVID... Uh, uh, um, 
tragedy has, however, enlightened us about the fact that cities uh, um, were free of, of, for a long time, free of cars, free of pollution. Mm -hmm. And then people looked around them and said, you're squeezing all the people who are allowed to get on the streets into tiny little paths so that they cannot distance from each other. And yet you're keeping all this empty space for, for cars and we can't go there. You, 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 finally, people woke up and said, "Hang on, look how much land we've given to cars," and um, and and yet that's the road space, which, by the way, two percent of the time of a car's life is spent there, and and yet you know it still gets a huge allocation of space, and and so and so one you need to step back and say, how did we let this happen? What right do cars have? to monopolize all the space, this very precious shared space. These are cities, the city streets do not belong to the citizens individually as private land. They belong to the city as public land. And it decides how much to give to one uh, a constituency versus another. So if you're, if you're a, a driver, and by the way, you don't need even to be a driver that's resident in the city. In fact, most of the people who take advantage of the city's uh, uh, roadways are ex-urban. They're suburban. They're people from outside the city, but yes. the people who live in that city are told to forsake, to for, to to give up the, the the that very precious resource to people who don't even live there, and 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 that's that's one of these paradoxes that that now people are highlighting and are and are asking. Why do we do this? Why do we penalize those people who live there in favor of those who live outside, who pay taxes outside, not inside, and they have some privilege to drive their cars from the suburbs into the city, park them where you know at subsidized rates, take up parking lots, parking spaces, parking garages, which could be used instead to house people who actually live there. And and therefore, by not housing them, forcing them to pay more instead for those for those. So so the the the, the people who live in cities are effectively uh, robbed of the of the natural resource that they are entitled to, and are made to pay more, even though the ones who are benefiting are not living there. This is a fundamental robbery, and this is what the 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 people who are advocates of city planning that is more let's say progressive are pointing this out and saying, why did you do this? Why did you do this 40 years ago or 30 or whenever this decision was made to allocate all this land and all these spaces to vehicles? Why did you do this? Did you not understand the consequences? It was just A lot of this was swept under the carpet because people didn't think about it this way. They said, well, you know, cars are good because it creates economic activity and shopping and all these other things. And, and by the way, there's no alternative, so we got rid of the alternative. Precisely. And so it was yeah, kind yeah. of like... You just went along with it. It wasn't. It wasn't maybe that there was anybody evil conspiring to make it so, but that's how it it ended up. And and so I'm not one to kind of go go into this too far. But I've seen the stories, and and I think the the point about the isms and the and the way and the way we allocate capital and the way we allocate resources and the way that we decide what's fair and what's not fair i mean the the car has completely uh, uh blinded us to realizations of you know that that it, it it is a fundamental let's say uh uh misallocation it's a fundamental uh, uh externality uh, driven uh, economy so it's not showing actual prices and as a result, you could argue it is not of the capitalism. It is actually of the opposite of that. It is a yes. command economy, not a free market economy. I wouldn't say socialism because that's, again, that's the wrong ism. But the, totally. The, 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 well, there's, there's two points that I want to make here. One is that um, I remember you doing the Asim car series and talking about how the countries that were involved in car making, it had been a political decision by the governments to get into it because it was strategically valuable, even though yes. you know these countries, these countries sort of decided, okay, we're going to have car manufacturing, and so they built plants. And in some places they were competitive, and in others they weren't. And but it was, but overall, it's been a massively subsidized industry. And it's true; it is a product. This is where the isms do connect. It was the, when you study the history of automotive, you realize that these were 
very important geopolitical decisions about whether you have car making or you don't have car making. And and you may not realize this, but let me give give me 10 minutes to explain. The, the thing was, the, the watershed event was the Ford production system, which, which suddenly unleashed a force that the world had never seen, the ability to manufacture a very powerful machine in a very complex machine but it do so, do so on a massive scale, which actually created a huge amount of power, and not just to move people around to go to, to have fun and do shopping. No, the, because you, you had motors, and I'm talking about internal combustion motors, right, the four-cylinder engine that the Ford Model T had, built in the millions that it was built in. That meant you could also get trucks. That means you could get tanks. That means you could get airplanes. That means you could get logistics vehicles and boats and, sh and ships and everything in between. And the motorization, the power, the unleashing of horsepower for, for, for uh, um, mobilizing uh, an economy, but also mobilizing a military, that led mm -hmm. eff effectively to the mechanization of warfare. Mechanization of warfare, which began in World War One, just at the beginning of the of the Model T era, but it effectively really played it played itself out in World War Two, where it effectively the war was won on horsepower. Whoever had most horsepower won. And of, if you want to know World War Two in the nutshell, that's it. Whoever made the most horsepower got to win who couldn't make enough horsepower got to lose that's how important it was and it was also the fascists and the in the communists who all looked at the ford production system and they said hey if we don't get that we get to lose the next war and so both mobilized in order to get the the, the ability to generate horsepower and that led to the nationalization of automotive manufacturing so this is why the volkswagen was a nazi effort this is why the you know when you look at the automotive market in in the Soviet Union, which was under Lada, that was a, a a national effort that happened much later. But initially, for World War II, it was on the truck side and on the tank side, the T the T thirty four, which effectively was the the vehicle that won the war as far as the Eastern Front was concerned. That was basically built using the Ford production system, so they were able to make more tanks. And the Americans, by the way, expanded the Ford production system to be able to make more airplanes than anybody else uh, by by far, and with more with more engines, with more engines on each airplane, which are you know the bombers that Americans built. Plus, yes, the Kaiser production Kaiser used effectively the Ford production system to make ships, which allowed them to actually have wars happening on both. Uh, uh, across both Atlantic and Pacific. So you had effectively the, the United States was the only nation that could wage war around the world. And that did that because of horsepower. This was geopolitical. Now people focus on oil, but if you actually understand that you can't use the oil unless you have the machines and the machines had to be built using giant uh, scale of manufacturing and, and machine tools and supply chains and raw materials and all these other things that were possible. And it was Ford who unleashed that power and as a result, everybody saw it. It was Hitler who had huge envy for Ford. Hitler who actually said, told Porsche to build a, a prototype vehicle which ended up as being the Volkswagen and that meant people's car and that was essentially designed to mobilize Germany but really, behind the scenes, he wanted to bring the Ford production system so he could make weapons as well. So that was the, 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 that was the, the, the key driver for the, a lot of the 20th century. And then you look at the fact that the British, the French, the Italians, who were other car-making companies, also did so for very, very strategic reasons. And they didn't do it by necessarily nationalizing those industries, but they did it by providing loans and providing uh, you know, permits and providing, like you said, information infrastructure for cars and saying, yes, 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 okay, we will make sure we have roads and we make sure we have gas stations, we make sure all these things were, were permitted because if everybody saw the automobile as the foundation for the 20th century, not just mobilizing people, but, but effectively having the power to be a world power. And this is why the, 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 if you weren't a car-making nation, you were not a powerful nation. Yes. And, and, and the envy that, that, that followed from this is why Japan had to become a, 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 you know, a car-making nation as well, because they said, okay, we, we will fall behind. This is why 
Korea followed. It's why China followed. It's why India followed. When it came to cars, everybody had to do it themselves. Otherwise, you were out of the game. So that was the 20th century. That was effectively the geopolitical discussion that had to happen. And so uh, the 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 in some ways, you can't ignore that and say, well, how do we get to where we are? It's not by, because there was an evil cabal who decided we're going to we're going to control the world through the automobile and, and, and the cities are going to all be conspirators along with us. No, no, no. It, it, we're kind of left over. It's a hangover of the 20th century where these decisions were so much bigger than, than any of us could think. It was the Cold War. It was geopolitical. It was with thermonuclear weapons. It was all that stuff. We've kind of forgot about all that, but that's really what motivated almost every decision. And so now we're left with this weird, weird system of cities being effectively uh, mis misallocating their most most important resource, which resource, which is land. And we we have the sunk cost mentality. It's like, well, this is the way it always was. And Precisely, it's and to cost change, too much and to to change re road space allocation would detract from the existing. <clears throat> I mean, one of the big things that we're seeing. Uh, even in the sort of rapid shift across to temporary bike lanes and stuff, people, you can't take away that parking because it'll reduce the capacity of these roads and therefore the uh, you know the effective functioning of the system that we have designed to work in this yeah, way. I, I don't know day. if, if I've it, yeah if I've made this point before on this on this show, but it was basically that this is a sunk cost fallacy. It's so classic sunk cost. We know the, the sunk cost principle, and for those who, maybe if I didn't say this before, I'll, I'll just repeat it with this very simple. Fable. So the, the the way you think about sunk costs is as follows. You know, you imagine you have a you have a uh, you have a treasure map, right? X marks the spot. So uh, two 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 fellows are 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 looking at the map and say, okay, let's dig for for treasure. We got the map. So they start digging, uh, and and you know they get down about a couple of feet, and then one of them looks at the map and says, hey, wait a minute, we, we you know our map's upside down. And he turns upside down and says, "We should be digging over there instead. You know, we're a couple of we're a couple of uh, uh, meters away from the the real X." Uh, but the other one argues with him and says, "Listen, we've already dug this far. We've done th <laughs> three feet down already. Yeah, and 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 so we might as well keep digging." And you you know the punchline is the other one looks at at his buddy who's saying this and he says, "You know what? You're right." And they continue digging. Right. That is the sunk cost fallacy. You look at the map, it's upside down, but you choose to keep digging. Because why? Because we've kept digging before. So the point about this is that if someone shows you the map and the map says, you know what, there's a better way. The better way is not to go through more car, but to go to micro to redesign the cities. You know, everyone agrees that that's a better outcome. Everyone agrees that's going to save the planet. Everyone agrees we're going to be wealthier, healthier, and better looking as a result. But you still dig. You still dig because we've always dug this way. Totally. And, and I think a lot about problem. the... I mean, the thing that I'm thinking a lot about at the moment, in New Zealand, we're facing this, and I imagine we're going to be facing this. There's going to be a lot of other countries that are going to be doing the same thing, right? Which is... Coming out of something like COVID, we're going to be in a depression and there'll be some sort of um, great infrastructure spend or, you know, a great, uh, a new grand new deal. Um, and, and, you know, we're having the discussion in New Zealand at the moment because we're doing, we want to try and focus in order to be able to effectively spend the money that any money that gets deployed into infrastructure projects on shovel ready projects. We want to do the thing that um, we've done some basic work on it. We know that it's probably going to pay off a little bit. So we'll go and spend it. And overwhelmingly in New Zealand, that's roads. And I imagine it's going to be the case in a lot of other places, which in some ways only reinforces the dependency that we've had on our, on, on, on things well, in the past. Um, I, I, I know whenever we have these conversations, usually take the point that's saying, well, this is what happens in New Zealand. It's what happens in the U.S. It seems to be more common. And I don't disagree that maybe if that's the most common response is the shovel-ready, whatever. But I also note the exceptions. The exceptions are cities which have decided to, to, to look at the map and say, you know, there's a better place to go. And, and those cities are – we should highlight those cities – the the Paris the Milan the and, and say yeah I know I I know that's like one in a thousand maybe one in a thousand but they're the the ones I pay attention to they're the ones who actually are the 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 innovators they're the 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 early adopters they're the ones who are taking a risk on something new and they're the ones who are smart 
And I always say it's better to listen to smart people and follow what they do than the ones who aren't so smart. That's just a, just a good rule to follow in life. And And so my point is, let's not give up because the majority does the wrong thing. And the majority is always going to do the wrong thing. The f- point is to do, to find those who are our leaders, encourage the leaders, and and become one of them. And that's the 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 the, the what what always has driven every industry that has come to become you know a disruptive force that has changed the world that's always been you know the pc and the steve jobs and the the uh, pioneers uh even ford in the in his day and so on and those people who who uh, uh made uh against all the naysayers and all the you know shovel ready stuff so let's totally. let's 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 be cognizant that the the world is changed by the few not not the many yeah, I guess I, there's another, the other point I was going to make earlier was about, um, there's a book called Order Without Design, uh, which is written by a guy called Alan Bertard, uh, and he's a, uh, he's a phenomenal, I mean, he, he had been an urban planner and urban economist, and, and he, he went through and he, he, he started his, uh, his career in Algeria, ended up in Haiti and Yemen and the US and jumped around the world helping, oh, and Hanoi. Um, jumped around the world, ended up at NYU as a professor. Um, as a, but his interest, his 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 theory and his, his, his what he puts forward in this book is this idea that cities are actually marketplaces, and that road, you know, uh, uh, land space allocation, uh, despite the fact that urban planners oftentimes never consider economics, it's an entirely it's an inherently economic decision, and w- what you end up with is weird distortions between what a planner might plan for in a city and what actually happens because people are rational and they're going to try and you know, effectively do what's the most rational thing for them. And his point around transport, so one he he references Marchetti's constant a lot, and he talks about how cities are really just labor marketplaces, and that at the end of the day, people will live in a city in order so that they can have access to a job or opportunity to be able to earn money. And they never want to be more than about an hour away in terms of commuting distance uh, in a day. Um, but his point around mobility is that cars, you know, they work for certain particular scales of cities, but then they, they don't scale up. And this is a geometry problem that you and I have talked about a lot on this podcast. Mm. Um, and, and the fact that as you get to sort of like higher levels of density, you need to have higher throughput means of transport. And the challenge that we've had in most of our development, when you look at the way that we've built regulations, and as you say, the, the sort of uh, minimum parking requirements or road space allocation, et cetera, is that those are regulations that have been built regardless of the size of the city. Right. So it's it's like whether or not it's a town or whether or not it's a giant city, generally speaking, they're sort of the, the regulations don't change because we have planning uh, regulations that apply across a state. Yeah, yeah, because people are copy pasting regulations. They're not thinking about it. And, and, you know, a lot of people who I follow who are city planners are saying, you know, in many ways they feel like the the enemy, the 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 force they're fighting against are the traffic engineers or these these people who are certified civil civil engineers who follow yes. rules that they learned in school that were written 30 40 years ago and they use software that was written 30 40 years ago that decides how how a city should be and they're all the engineers if you ask them well we got to do this and they say well this is how the only way to do it and they, yes. they're not innovative <laughs> in any way and they're following because again they have part of the certification you get the, if you get certified as an engineer to work for a city you you learn the rules and that's the whole system is self-reinforcing and in, 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 you know, the way you fix this is not like you butt heads against them and you sort of argue violently against something. You try to work around it. I wanted to, I wanted to highlight this as, as, again, the only way I can, which is with an example, is that we're facing this dilemma right now with the COVID and the transit. And the transit situation... Uh, so, by the way, cities, if they if they want to grow, as 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 did the great mega cities of the world, if they want to grow, and they obviously run out of streets uh, or, or real estate for cars, what they do is they build transit, and that's fine. The transit has been a phenomenon since the 1880s, I think, 
And it, it's been before the car, it's been after the car, it's been during the car. It's going to be a very, very, it's a, the highest throughput. It, everyone knows this, right? It's a great system. But right now we're facing a crisis with transit because of social distancing and all this other stuff. So it does have an Achilles heel, which is, you know, once in a while you get a pandemic. Uh, and in this situation, the the... The, the the utilization of the system collapses and then people say well then people will go to cars well first of all if they have the car secondly if if they have the the parking and thirdly if they have the time because this is where the, especially this the, the, these are all by the way deal killers many people don't have cars they're yep. very expensive to begin with and we're looking at an increasingly more and more expensive uh, asset to own secondly if they have the 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 parking space, so one you need money, two you need space. Space is again not growing on trees. We're not going to get more space in cities unless we build skyscraper of parking lots uh, or parking garages, and and uh, and so the spaces are not going to be there. So if you increase, let's say even by ten percent, the number of cars coming into a city, I can assure you most cities are full up with parking. At rush hour, there's no way during the I mean during the regular workday that you can get a parking spot. It's it the prices if they might be a marginal capacity extra, it, the prices is going to go through the roof for those extra spots. Like right. like way beyond anybody's ability, normal person. I mean maybe the rich can afford it, but then the rich would not have been taking transit in the first place. Third, most important, you mentioned it already. Marchetti's constant. Studies are showing that the, the amount of commute time that would rise would be, you know, sometimes people say on average a few minutes here or there, 10, 12 minutes, depending on how many more people are going to switch out of transit into cars. But the fact is that Marchetti's constant is pretty invariant and it is pretty constant. So what it suggests is there is a low tolerance for spending more than an average of an hour. It's just a very low tolerance. We, we would move heaven and earth to go back to an hour. And so the pain for the, the and some even I suggest some models are suggesting you spend forty minutes more in your commute. Forget it; it's not going to happen. People yeah. will just rather quit their job and go to live in Iowa or something like that in order to avoid that kind of commute pain and hell. So the 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 the, the so you've got three things then you've got to overcome: economics, space, and time, in order to accommodate as many cars as unnecessary to eliminate the the, 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 the the transit. So here's my hypothesis on this. Number one, people will go back to transit uh, because memories are short. People will eventually come back to the behaviors that they're used to having. I think a lot of this will blow over. But even if not, the beauty of, of micromobility is that it says, hey, Hey, you know, like in the back of the room, raises its hand and say, "What about me?" Yeah. I've got, you know, the, everybody's doing studies, academic studies, McKinsey studies, or what, what have you. All these studies, it's like, what's the impact going to be if transit switches to cars? And there's there's the little micro in the back raising its hand and say, "Hey, how about me?" And some people, some people, again, the courageous ones, the smart ones, the the ambitious ones, the risk taking ones, right? As Steve Jobs would say, those those who dare to 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 change the world are, the, or what was it? Uh, who, the, or those who have the courage to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Are the ones who do right? The world changers will be in the back doing doing the micro stuff. So, and they are the leaders. They are the ones who get followed. They are the ones who get copied. They are the ones who are people would point to and say, okay, because they're doing it, I'm going to do it. And so that's that's uh, the way these things happen. We're not going to get it because from top down, Donald Trump is going to tell you to go on a bike. No, yes. in fact, he won't. He'll tell you not to get on the bike, or yes. Boris Johnson, or anyone else who is in power, or or Putin. Forget it. You're not going to get it from those leaders. You're going to get it from the the real leaders, the ones who are you know fighting on the street. And th that to me is the way this always works. Right, the pioneers are always the ones who change the world. So uh, let's. The one thing that I, I think is positive about the transit uh, catastrophe we're under that's uh, that's under underway right now is that uh, perhaps uh, 
one more percent will consider the option that that micro has always had available again it only promises a few things better health more wealth more time big deal right these three things it asks and and or offers and and so it, it, maybe some people will notice um and, and and that's how we make progress we don't we, we it's not a it's not an a a step function it's an s curve it's not mm. overnight it takes time totally gradual... and i mean my i have a deep frustration about how slow i feel like it's taking you we've talked about this in the past and you said look these things transport this is this is this is like rapid change you know what we're seeing already even though it's growing off a you know it's slow what feels like slow to anybody who's in the internet or tech space yeah, it does, and it, it, it's the reason I'm involved at all is because I think it's going to go a little bit faster than 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 it would without the fact that we have technology as as the heart of the solution here. Uh, maybe I'm overly optimistic. Maybe things are not as fast as I had hoped, but but generally it is uh, it is making uh, m- making progress. I get no one asked for or wished for the COVID. Uh, and and but I think again, as the story doesn't change, the the value of micromobility is the same, and now maybe it's more discoverable. I, that's the only mm. thing I can say about it. It's more discoverable. It's not that it's gotten better. It's always been good. It's always been as good as 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 before. Um, it's suddenly though people are saying, you know, and in particular those decision makers, and I'm hearing this again anecdotally, city planners or city managers or city uh, uh, politicians are saying, you know, this could be a solution to my problem today, which is that I don't, I'm not going to be able to serve my 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 constituents, my my stakeholders. I cannot serve them with transit anymore. Even the yes. transit companies are saying, boy, you know. We may not make it out of here alive, but if if somehow we we reach out and partner with the micro guys and gals, we can we can maybe get get through this. And and so this uh, this spirit of let's figure out a way to patch the system using micro. Let's figure out a way to bridge this time using micro. Then perhaps we will we we will we will remember what service this rendered. So to go back to our kind of earlier point about how how does it happen? Because the thing that I look at, right, is that the way that that can most effectively happen is if we do things like let's reprice road space. Let's not, you know, and, and I go and the reason that I think that that's kind of challenging is that that is politically a well, even even three months ago, I think that, you know, yes, conceptually we should do it. New York has, like, said we're going to start doing things like congestion pricing. But that is a very long, you know, it's taken a long time. It, it was, was put up um, six years ago and defeated when um, when when um, Bloomberg was mayor. And then it took, you know, came, came back again and finally, they finally said we're maybe going to do this. What I think is, um, and the reason that I was kind of alluding to Hayek and then the challenges of what it actually looked like when it got implemented is that that is a painful process. There's going to be a lot of people who who get hurt in that transition of repricing road space, but it needs to happen. If if especially because I think what you're going to find is that there's going to be a lot of people who are just saying, you know, hey, I can't drive my car as I used to before, and this micromobility device or thing, for example, doesn't serve my needs anymore. Um, and yet it is the most economically rational thing for all of us to do and it solves all of these other problems. Um, but people will get hurt in that transition. Those structural changes are painful as we go through them. Um, and, 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 and the- but, there's, but the COVID is painful, right? I mean, what we're facing right now is this, this greater pain, which I think that people are realizing that this is actually, a, uh, in many ways, alleviates some of that pain. Uh, and and so, look, I, I just know, heard, you know, the UK is starting to uh, finally permit some scooters. Uh, unbelievable. Yes. Yeah, it but, is. Yeah, <laughs> finally. But, but it is. Yeah. yeah, it's unbelievable that they're so late. But as I said, there's always going to be laggards. There's always going to be leaders and there's always going to be followers. Um, so, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it is painful and, and maybe in practice. And again, I tend to not be uh, hung up too much on that, but it's. It is in practice very painful. It's all very local. All politics is local, 
and uh and uh, yes you can't fight city hall but you know what the world still changes so the the the, the, the i don't know i i can't say much more uh, except to encourage uh to keep fighting and that the the uh the persuasion here happens through through uh not only like this is where where the heart of micromobility as are you know as as micromobility industries is dedicated i believe to the concept that we don't have to only argue the facts that we can we can also argue the emotions and we can argue the intangibles um and that at the end of the day, it's not just a market for smi- for miles; it's a market for smiles. So it, it, we 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 got to win hearts and minds. So yes, um, as well as the price the, argument. Yeah, yeah. No, look, I hear you. Well, look, this this has been a very interesting chat. If nothing else, I've I've uh, I've learned a bunch. And I mean, I think you're you're you in some ways you're quite uniquely placed because you've been lived in both. Um, you know, market and and centrally controlled economies in terms of understanding uh, perhaps the intricacies of of how this happens and also the challenges of being um, able to The thing you learn, you know, I trained as an engineer. I grew up with parents who were mathematicians. We've always been in a, in a kind of, in my family's been always about rationality. It's always been about uh, facts data learning etc etc but one thing i have learned beyond that is that human systems so social systems social science if you will although that's probably a misnomer but th- 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 that is far more nuanced and 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 far more uh far more uh, uh non-deterministic and 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 so you have to have a knack for understanding how 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 people behave and it it is we those of us who are inclined to think think logically about things to think uh, to quantify things we're always looking for quantifiable um uh, a, a function that that describes humanity but it is far more complex than that uh so so it, it let's let's just take take it at that and and then you know the isms to me the political isms are are these these attempts to to define complexities with very simple things and then it doesn't uh it, it doesn't work typically anyway thanks for the uh for the for the philosophical debate here <laughs> well, anytime anytime excellent